We're continuing our study in Romans. Um, And I want to begin by showing you some pictures of common everyday items. And as I show them, I I want to highlight some things that we might miss when we view them. Um, and, And maybe you've noticed these things, but maybe you don't know really what they mean. Because I think sometimes we can... Uh, We don't always understand the full purpose of something. You know, we understand that it has an intended purpose, but maybe we don't understand its full purpose. And if if, if we miss that, then we miss out on its usefulness. And so the first one is this. Now, some of you, for some reason, like to keep it here. That scares me. Um, I, I think some of you, like my wife, have a innate ability to say, how much further can I run the car? <laughs> but anyways, if you've ever noticed on your gas gauge, you have this. Does anyone know what that's for? Which side the gas tank's on. So, like, when you pull into a gas station, if you don't know what side your gas cap is, just look at where the arrow's pointing, and it'll tell you. Um, I remember, I mean, I was already driving, and when I found that out, it was like, oh, my word. I didn't know that. Um, The other one is this. So, this is... Just a regular ketchup bottle, right? How many of you have tried to get Heinz ketchup out of the bottle and have pretty much thrown your shoulder out, banging on the top of the bottle? Well, Heinz ketchup has said, and you can't see it very well, but right there, there's a 57 that is etched in the glass. If you tap on that 57, the ketchup will come out. And it works. But it's one of those, they put it into the bottle as a purpose thing, but you might not understand it and frustrate yourself. Now, if you have kids, juice boxes. Now, they don't just put these folds on here because that's the way they make the boxes. They make them on there so that small hands can hold the juice box without squeezing it and shooting the drink all over them. Once again, the big purpose is a drink, but hidden into it is a, a smaller purpose to be able to hold it. And then you have the pen cap. How many of you have ever had a pen that has gone dry? Yeah, like we, I think that's all we have in our house. I'll, I'll go to sign something or write something down, and I, we have a can that has pencils and pens, and either the pencils have no points on them, or the pens are dry. And then I think, well, why would you have a pen cap with a hole in the end, at the end of it? Well, does, uh, engineers put the hole at the end of the cap so that if a child were to swallow it, their airway can still be open and so that they can still breathe. And so uh, it's one of those hidden purpose kind of things. I hope that you never have to use something like that. And then Coke or any kind of can, the tab has a hole in it, not so that you can grip it, but they've engineered it so that you can turn it around and put a straw in it. 
and it'll hold it better. Some of you are like, oh my word, I've lived this long. So uh, you are welcome. Um, But that's the thing, right? We can look at something, we can use something, and we might not understand, we might not see the full purpose of of what it is, and, and we sometimes miss out on its complete usefulness. In each one of these items that I showed, there is a primary purpose and often tucked within them a secondary purpose. And when you miss the secondary purpose, you sometimes miss the resulting joy as is intended. That can happen too as you read Scripture. Sometimes we see the big overarching purpose, but we miss the under undercurrent or the, the, the secondary purpose that is often found within a text. And then sometimes God shines a light. By His grace, He allows us to see some things that we might have missed and He allows us to understand a fuller purpose of what He is doing and what He is accomplishing. God helps us to answer some of the questions that we may have so that we can better understand His overall plan of redemption. And that's what we have this morning in Romans 11. We have the opportunity to see a primary purpose and a secondary purpose of what God is doing that invites us to consider His grand plan of redemption for the world. And so as we study this scripture together, it's my prayer that we do see a God who is on the throne, that is sovereign. He's the king in the good times and the bad. And that he has a very specific plan for redemption. And as a result, it brings us joy and it gives him glory. We need to understand something about God and about the God that we see in Scripture. God's primary focus in revealing Himself to us is His glory. It's His glory. Think about that. Why does God save anyone? So that He could be glorified. And in that glorification, in the lifting up of God, he gets to enjoy relationship with his broken creation. And we've been talking about this a lot in Romans, about, you know, it just seems, I I cannot fathom how God can create and know that these, His creation would respond this way in rejecting Him and choosing self and following the path of sin. And yet, in spite of ourselves, He continues to press in and provide a Savior so that we can come to know Him and enjoy Him forever. I can't fathom that. But that's the God that we serve. And I hope you know this morning, even when we talk about Israel 
and you think, I'm not Jewish, I hope you see for you that there is a God who loves you incredibly. And he is inviting you into a relationship through his son so that you can enjoy him and lift up his name forever. Because without his work on our behalf, we're dead. We're lost. And one of the great things that God has given us in a relationship with him is each other. To enjoy him together. To celebrate his goodness. And to live the life that he has for us. And there is so much in this world that gets in the way of that. I pray that we can push forward and see that to be together. The psalmist says, it is good to be in the house of the Lord. It's good to be together. It's good that when it's raining outside that we still have space to meet for a a picnic. It's good for God's people, the visible church to gather as the invisible body to glorify him. And so when we look at Romans 11, 9 through 11, we see God's glory again and again as he brings about his purposes, even in the midst of difficulty. There's difficulty here. The passage is centered around rejection. I don't see that as a positive thing. I don't see that as a warm, fuzzy, oh, no big deal, it'll all work out in the end. There's rejection going on, and yet God is still working. He is still faithful. These texts call us to a higher plane. It, these, these passages, sometimes they seem overwhelming, sometimes they seem hard, but when we're talking about the grand purposes of God and what He's doing on behalf of sinful men, and, and we're starting to weigh through all of the, the doctrines of salvation and what it means for God to call us and for us to respond to that calling. And, and, and as he grafts us in and brings us into his family and we're, we're called to consider all those things, what happens is we, we begin lifting our eyes up. Scripture calls us not to look at the circumstances of this world. And I'm so thankful that, that, that salvation is not based on the circumstances of this world. That even in the midst of great trouble and trial, God can still move and advance His purposes because we see that He is sovereign and above it. But our eyes are called to look up and to consider what God is doing at a level that we don't often see. That's a gift. This is a gift that we have this morning in this passage. Do you ever ask a question and, and think, I don't know if I'm ever going to get the answer for that? Well, sometimes God gives us the answer to some of our questions. We're given the answer this morning as to why Israel, such a precious people to God, the whole Old Testament is about Israel, how these precious people have rejected him the way that they have 
How is that possible? Why was it permitted to happen? And what is God's purpose in it? I mean, when I think of Israel and I read the scriptures and I I, I see the Old Testament and I see the New Testament and I, I, I see it all put together, I often think, how can they miss it? It was so clear that Christ is the reality of all of the promises given to them for a Messiah. And yet, they missed it. When we're called to these higher planes in Scripture, we also need to remember what God's Word says as we reconcile all these things. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, we read, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return from there without watering the earth, and making it bare and sprout, and furnishes seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. This is the prophet Isaiah writing to a people, largely, that were walking in disobedience. They were, they were in judgment because they continued to follow their flesh. And God makes this promise through the prophet Isaiah that what he is doing on their behalf, they're not going to understand it. And frankly, that's how I often feel as I watch God at work in my life and in the world. God, I don't often understand what you are doing, what you are permitting. But God reminds us his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are greater than our thoughts. And as we are invited to consider what God is doing through Israel, there are things that he allows us to understand and answer, and then there are things that are just reserved for him because he's the sovereign. And we walk by faith as we see these things played out. We're going to see later in Romans eleven thirty three through 36, Paul's conclusion to this great thought of where Israel fits in God's plan is, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And he goes on and on in explaining just what it means to, to follow a God who seems many times a great mystery. And Paul concludes by saying, all I can say to you, God, is praise your name. Because we don't have it all figured out for us, but he does. And isn't that a comforting thought? It is for me. How many of you have your life figured out? Right. Good for you. The first step is admitting you have a problem. Right? We don't have it figured out, but we have a God that does. And he enjoys us coming to him and trusting him no matter what the next step is for us. So the question is asked in chapter 11, in verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall 
did they? Paul asks a rhetorical question in the negative that presumes the answer that he's giving. He introduces this question as he's advancing the argument that God is not finished with his people, Israel. The question that is hanging over the readers of this letter in Rome is if God is so faithful in saving people, then why have the people that should have understood what it means to follow Him and to believe in the Messiah, why have they largely rejected Him? Did God's Word fail? Are God's promises not true? Does it mean He doesn't care? Does it mean that He's moved on? Does it mean that the church has replaced Israel? And all of these questions are swimming around in their minds. And Paul is methodically answering these questions. And he he says, did they stumble to the point? And and if you remember, that word stumbling has been found several other places in Romans 9.32 and Romans 11.9. Did they trip over the tripping point to the point that they can never give up or get up? Like, did they fall on their face? And does that mean that they can never stand again? That's the question that Paul asks. And I'm thankful that he doesn't take too long to answer it. May it never be. May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now as Paul asks the question, And he answers the question that Israel, while they have rejected the Messiah, is not in a permanent state of rejection. We also see something of the secondary purpose of why Israel stumbled. And so in in this passage, we're going to see a purpose tucked into a purpose tucked into a purpose. That God is faithfully working to bring people to himself. Here's the short story of what Paul is saying in verses 11 and 12 and the verses following. There is no church without Israel tripping. That's the short story. There's no us without Israel falling falling on their face when faced with the Messiah. Think about that. In the Old Testament, for a Gentile to be brought into a relationship with God, they were considered a proselyte. And even if a Gentile was brought into the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, they were never true Israel. They were never able to enjoy everything that a descendant of the nation of Israel was able to enjoy. They could enjoy God at the temple only so far. They could only go into the outer courts. They they weren't able to enter into the holy places, into the other courts where they were closer to the Lord and the manifestation of His power. But without Israel falling on their face when it came to Jesus, there is no proclamation us listen to what paul says but by their transgression salvation has come to the gentiles to make them jealous 
The them is Israel. It's not the church. Israel's sin brought the gospel to the Gentiles. And as the gospel is brought to the Gentiles, the Jewish people are now jealous. That's what Paul is teaching here. Purpose tucked into purpose. Here's what I want you to see. God is not finished with his people. He's not. I would think that if someone rejected me, I'd just give up and move on. That's not the way of God. He doesn't move on. He may set aside, and that's what he's done. But he doesn't forget and move on and say, you rejected me, that's it. He's going to return to these people. Now, there, there's something strange here that, that we see in, in verse 11 that you might have thought when I read the verse and, and, and maybe you're wondering about. But God is causing the nation of Israel to be jealous. That doesn't seem very godly, right? That doesn't seem like Well, that's something that I would expect God to do. The word used for jealous means to provoke to excitement. God is using the church today to provoke Israel to excitement of following the Lord again. A people that had grown arrogant towards the ways of God are enticed by the life that Gentiles find in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And as a result, God's purpose will stand as Israel returns in belief. That's the ending of Romans 11. When Paul says later on in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. That he uses the church as an object to entice the nation back to him. Now, a note on this jealousy. Paul stresses here the desire to retrieve what has been lost. In Deuteronomy 32.21, which was cited in in Romans 10.19, when we read... God saying, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. That God is using the success of the Gentile church. The mission of the church to bring his people back. Theologian John Stott described this kind of jealousy this way. He says, not all jealousy is tainted with selfishness because it is not always either a grudging discontent or a sinful covetousness. At base, jealousy is the desire to have for oneself something possessed by another. And whether jealousy is good or evil depends on the nature of the something desired and on whether one has the right to possess that. If that something is in itself evil or if it belongs to somebody else and we have no right to it, then the jealousy is sinful. But if the something desired is in itself good, a blessing from God, which he means all his people to enjoy, then to 
covet or be jealous of those who have it is not all unworthy. This kind of desire is right in itself, and to arouse it can be a realistic motive in ministry. And so what John Stott is saying is jealousy isn't a bad thing if it's rooted in a good thing that you don't have or possess. And what God is doing is He's enticing these people that have rejected Him to see what they have missed. And how does He entice them? He allows the church to be where it is. God even uses human sin, the stumbling, the transgression of Israel to accomplish His goals. You hear me say that? God uses sin in rejection to accomplish His purposes. Chew on that for a minute. God doesn't ordain it. He's not the author of it, but He uses it. We see that all throughout Scripture. This is what Paul says in Romans 8.28 as the working out of all things for good. This is as Genesis 50 verse 20 says, the, uh, Joseph saying to his brothers that sold him into slavery, what you intended for evil, God will use for good. That God's ways are higher than our ways and that he purposes his ways and uses all of it for his glory. That God will, through the Gentiles, bring Israel back to him. And so it's in this sense we see God purposing or ordaining Israel's failure for our good that will result in their good. Israel's failure is for our good and our good is for their good. This statement shouts with the sovereignty of God over creation. Nothing will get in the way with what God desires. Nothing can change God's plan. Israel's rejection was not the end of their salvation. Their stumbling over Christ was not the end of the story. The Gentiles' invitation wasn't a plan B to God. When Acts chapter 2 happened, and Peter preached to the people that were gathered in Jerusalem under the the power of the Holy Spirit, and the church was born, and thousands came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God wasn't up in heaven saying, oh my, I never thought this would happen. It's always been a part of God's plan, clear back into the book of Genesis, when God made a promise to Abraham that He would use Abraham and his descendants to bless the whole world. It was never a surprise. Israel being jealous of Gentile faith is not an accident. Every step of the process shouts that God is in control. This is why this passage is so important. This is why Romans 9, 10, and 11, talking about Jewish people, is so important for Gentile people. Because it shows us again and again of the faithfulness of God. And if you ever prone to doubt, that God is faithful to you. This passage eradicates that kind of thinking. Why is this a big deal? 
Because God's ways are higher than our ways. When we are tempted to think that God is far off, we need this reminder that He is close and working out His plan of redemption. In verse 12, in chapter 11, we read, Now if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Their transgression, their failure, those are not warm, fuzzy sentiments. Their sin, their inability to see Christ is what? Riches for us. I cannot truly fathom the riches that we have received in Christ. I can talk about them. I know them in some way experientially. I know that there is more to come. But if I were to say to you what value it is to follow Christ and to know Christ and for Him to know me, I cannot put a value on it. It's a a, a sum that is too great to calculate. It's overwhelming to know that in Christ we are a new creation, a part of a new family, given a new nature, forgiven of all sin, gifted by the Holy Spirit, empowered to live for God and serve Him with joy, assured of the future that we have with Him forever in heaven. And church, I'm just scratching the surface, but when you read the New Testament, it is littered again and again with blessing after blessing of what it means to know Him and to be known by Him and to have riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. I mean, we were formerly bankrupt in our sinful flesh, and now we are richly blessed beyond measure in Jesus Christ. And when Paul says that their sin was our riches... In some ways, it's just the start of it. It, It's the invitation to something greater that, that we can never possess for ourselves. Listen, our worst day as a Christian will never change God's promises for you. You are blessed richly beyond measure. And often in our life today, we attach the blessings with what we see, the tangible things. And we think, if I didn't get this, or I can't get this, or I wanted this... That must mean God doesn't want to bless me. Go to Afghanistan this morning and gather with the church that is gathered there or go to China, the underground church, and worship with them. Or go anywhere in the 1030 window of the world where in the Islamic countries that are Uh, ferociously locking down any kind of witness for Christ and see the believers that are gathered there, they know the riches they have in Christ Jesus. And while we have received so much, God is not finished yet with Israel. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more? How much more will their fulfillment be? This chapter is a lesson of God's patience. Here's the logic. We have received so much as a result of Israel's stumbling, and if God has done that, how much more will He do in fulfilling His promises to Israel? In fact, when you read it in the 
New American Standard Bible. What's the punctuation at the end of verse 12? An explanation point. When you see those explanation points, if you're reading something, what do you tend to do? You say it louder with more emphasis. And, and, and so let me read this again for you. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? That's what Paul is saying. Now, he didn't have the punctuation marks, but in the Greek language that he wrote it, it's emphatic. It's raised up in the text. It lifts off the page. And what he's saying to these people who are Roman Christians, when you consider the Jewish people, God is not finished, and he's using you to bring them back. And as he brings them back, God is glorified. And so in verses 13 and 14, we read, but I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles. He's speaking to us now, speaking to the church. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy, my fellow countrymen and save some of them. And as Paul returns to the church, those who are largely made up in the church of Rome, he reveals the intention of his ministry as an apostle of Gentiles. He's a Jewish man that came to faith in Christ. And as this Jewish man came to faith in Christ, his primary mission was to go to the people that once did not belong to God to bring them in. And as he went to them with the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, and they were brought into God's covenant family, the church in the New Testament age, he, he then says, you're brought in so that you can be the example to the people that are lost. The people of the house of faith of Israel. God's strategy of awakening Israel is to use the ministry of the gospel of the Gentiles as an example of the power of his saving grace. And when Paul says in verse 13, I magnify my ministry, what he's saying is I take pride in it. Literally, I glorify my ministry. Asking them to understand how much this Gentile ministry means to him. That this was what Paul was about. Even through all of the persecutions, abandonments, beatings, imprisonments, shipwrecks, everything. Paul kept moving forward so that the lost people of the Gentile world would be saved. So that God would use these people to save his brethren. Why does he serve and move to the Gentiles? If somehow I might move to jealousy, there's that word again, my fellow countrymen and save some of them. We read in Romans 10.1, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, Israel, is for their salvation. Romans 9 began with this great sorrow and unceasing grief that Paul had for his countrymen to come to know Christ. We see now why he serves in ministry the way that he does. There's also a truth that we can't miss here in these verses. But I'm speaking to you who are Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen. What does he want to move them to see? That God is saving people through the Messiah. What does that mean to us and what should we not miss in this passage? That if you live this way, if you live for Christ, 
it makes following Christ attractive for others. Oh, what a great witness it is for the church when you are sour and disgruntled and complaining and frustrated. Oh, what a witness you have to your neighbors when they call you to the fence line and they're complaining about how the world is going to hell and you're like, yeah, I'm right with you. It's terrible and all these things. And we go right into all of the the talk of what is wrong Oh, wait, that's not the way. That's not the witness. You know what the effective witness to the lost world is that makes attractive following Jesus Christ? When you're called into the darkness, you stand up for the light. When people are complaining, when they're unsure of what's going on, when they're giving their social commentary for why the world is the way that it is, that you know in your heart because God is on the throne in the good times and in the bad times that He is God alone and He has saved you for a purpose. And that what we see with our eyes is momentary. And what we will experience in the future is beyond measure. Church, this passage calls us to a higher plane. And I want to encourage you, don't give in to the drumbeat of frustration. Sure, we're going to be broken for how this world lives. But we don't need to get into the incessant cycle of darkness. Be attractive for Christ to others. Verse 15 Paul says, For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Israel's rejection is the reconciliation of the world. God is the active agent. God is the one that is moving. God is the one that is bringing salvation. In rejecting the nation, God has brought humankind back into a right relationship with Him. Through Christ, the world is able to be reconciled. Through Christ, the world is able to be made right before a holy God. And we are able to be brought into His eternal kingdom. The world is reconciled in their rejection. What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Right? There's the contrast. If the world is reconciled, how much more is their acceptance? We're talking about Israel here. Life from the dead. Now, I can't go into all the details that I initially wanted to, but if you want to talk about life coming from the dead, if you turn to Ezekiel chapter 37, I want to encourage you sometime today, Read Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 10. It's in Ezekiel 37 that the prophet Ezekiel is called to one of the terrifying visions as a prophet that God gave them about what is to come. And here is the vision. It might be the most terrifying that he received. Ezekiel was brought to a valley. And in this valley, it was full of dead bones. And... We see that as the bones were laying in the wasteland, that the Spirit of God blew over the bones. 
and they came to life. And the bones took on shape. In fact, the text tells us in Ezekiel 37 that the sinews and muscles and everything came alive as these bones were brought to life. Like this isn't just bones rising up and walking around. Like if you've ever seen the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, there's one of them where like the, the pirates that are, when they're, they're brought into the light, I think it's when the light shines on them, they turn into bones and they're moving around. This is not like a Halloween kind of thing. No, this is bones that are brought to life. And the valley of vision that Ezekiel is given in chapter 37 is a picture of Israel. That's what God is going to do for Israel that looks like they're dead. In fact, right now, if you think about Israel and and their spiritual state, you would say they seem like they're dead spiritually as it concerns what it means to follow God through Christ. But there is a time coming when those bones will put on flesh. The dead will come back to life. And in Romans eleven fifteen, Paul says, What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? What a great picture it's going to be at the end of the age when Israel walks into the kingdom with Jesus on the throne. Dead bones brought to life. In, in this final verse, in verse 16, Paul says, If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. Some commentators wonder if this verse belongs more with the verses coming ahead. I don't believe it does. I, I believe it finishes up what God is doing through the nation of Israel and putting them in the place that He does. Here's the point. When He says the dough is holy, the lump is also, and the root is holy, and the branches are too, whatever is at the base will always be alive. If the, if the base is alive, the branches are alive. If the lump, if, if the dough is holy, the lump is also. Now this first piece of dough and this root refers to the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made promise to them. He's going to keep them. And as we're going to see next week, I will fully develop this imagery of being grafted in to what God is doing through Abraham. So as we close this morning, I hope you see that God is sovereign, absolutely sovereign over His creation. And He has a very specific plan for redemption. And that, in, that plan includes you. It brings us joy and it gives Him glory to His name. And I also pray that you see God's great patience. Because there are thousands of years that he has waited for Israel to return. And he's not done. And if God is patient with them, he's going to be patient with you. And if God is patient with you, he's going to be patient with your neighbor. He's going to be patient with that family member. He's going to be patient until he can no longer be patient. But while he is being patient to those that have tripped over Christ. Be the example that He wants you to be to make Christ attractive. Much like He's using the church today in Israel's sake. And God is faithful to the very end. Let's pray.